Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. We've got a special episode here today. We've got a guest host. It's our very own CEO and co-founder, Basil Fakori. Uh, he's here with a guest, Benjamin Humphrey, who is the CEO and co-founder of Dovetail. So two great apps to throw in your UX research toolkit and two amazing CEOs and co-founders to talk about the UX research landscape. Yeah, another special episode, which is fun. We haven't done a lot of these, but it's fun to mess with the format a little bit. The way I think of this episode is just imagine that you get to be a fly on the wall while two co-founders of user research-focused companies get to really kind of geek out and pick each other's brain on all things user research. So there's going to be tidbits in there about how each of their companies came to be and how they got them started, what they see as short-term opportunities for their respective areas, how they think of the user research space more broadly, and, and what trends might be coming. So again, it's just like a really cool you know, look that you don't typically get to hear from, uh, from people who've been really immersed in this space for a number of years now. So um, hopefully it'll be interesting and, and people will learn lots about it. So if you're interested in starting a company, interested in user research, all that kind of stuff, I, I think there'll be different items in here you can take away from it. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward Silence. Silences. <laughs> All right. Well, Benjamin, thanks for joining me here. Just so everyone knows, I'm Basil. I'm co-founder and CEO of User Interviews, and this is Benjamin, um, also co-founder and CEO, but of Dovetail. And I'm, I'm based in New York. And Benjamin, where, where are you based? I'm in Sydney, Australia. Cool. So from all around the world here. And we're just going to have a conversation about our companies, you know, what we've been seeing in research. And yeah, so it should be fun. Thanks for, thanks for joining, Benjamin. Excited to chat. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. <laughs> cool. So maybe we can both just start like giving a little background on our companies. If you want to go first and just say, what does Dovetail do? Yeah, sure. So... We are a small Australian startup. We've been around for basically four years. So we started in sort of mid-2017 and we build software for researchers to analyze unstructured data and publish their insights, share things with the rest of the organization. So it's analysis and repository kind of offering, cloud product. Yeah, we're like 26 people at the moment. Everybody's based here in Sydney and my background is in design and computer science. So my co-founder is an engineer. So that's kind of our quick nutshell. <laughs> uh, awesome. Cool. Yeah, definitely solving a big pain point. I was just talking with the researcher today and they were talking about how that's storing the insights, sharing the insights, building that repository and analyzing it is like what they're spending a lot of their time doing. So definitely solving a pain point. Um, and then user interviews. So we focus on a different part of the research stack. We focus on the participant management and recruitment layer. So when people are doing research, they always need users to do research with. And the big split there we've always seen is if a company wants to talk to their existing users that they already know, or their non-users, people who might be prospective users or competitive users of competitors. And so we have products for both of those. So for kind of the non-user segment, we have Recruit which is basically an audience of participants. We have about half a million people in a thick layer of data on them. And our real differentiator is we can find 
really niche users uh, really quickly. And then when companies want to talk to their own users, they don't care about our audience, but there's a different set of pain points. So for the end user, a lot of times they have to do a lot of manual tasks, sending out a mail merge, scheduling, payment. We automate all of that. Then on the back end, all of that data flows into Research Hub, which is a system of record uh, for all of the participant interactions. So it's a way to track who you've reached out to, who's participated in what studies, and how much you've paid them. And that all is connected to those logistics. The data from the workflows flows into that. And then you can invite people to studies directly from uh, Research Hub. And yeah, we've been at it for, I guess, a little bit before you, like a little over five years now. Teams, almost 50 people now, which is, is wild, <laughs> the, the scale how fast it's been growing. And yeah, so we're, I think, riding very similar trends and, you know, serving a lot of times the same users, but very different pain points. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of our customers, when we speak to them, talk about participant recruitment and management, incentive management, and people just showing up for interviews as like one of their most, like biggest frustrations. So yeah. Yeah. I often think of like the, you know, this is a very basic framework, but I often think of the kind of three layers of the stack being the tool for conducting the test, which neither of us do. You know, there's a lot of companies doing that. There's look back, there's the user testings of the world. There's depending on type of research methodology and then the participant management and recruitment layer. And then, which is obviously where we play. And then kind of the insight storage and analysis layer, which is obviously yeah. where Dovetail is. Um, I'm curious though, like what's the story behind Dovetail? What made you decide to build it because you're saying it's like hot and obvious now but i imagine in 2017 it probably wasn't that's right yeah so we never like started out building a like a repository tool i didn't even know what research repositories were when we started the company so the history is that you know i was working at atlassian as a product designer as a lead product designer on the platform team and i was on this one project which was a growth team project and the growth team hadn't really uh, been exposed to like qualitative research and design, like they were very statistical sort of quantitative focused people. So we ran this research project where we, it was a diary study where we asked new people who signed up for a JIRA trial, uh, which was seven days to complete a diary entry each day. And the researcher I was working with, she uh, used Tumblr for this diary study. So she set up a Tumblr account for each participant and then we got all the data back after like a couple of weeks or whatever. And, and uh, you know, the way she, she analyzed it was printing it all out and putting it onto a whiteboard. And this whole process by the t- from starting it from like recruitment, basically, or like planning and recruitment to insights that we could actually use to change how onboarding worked took maybe three plus months. So like a whole quarter. And I saw this as a designer and I was like, oh, this sucks. Like there must be a better tool than Tumblr. So I built this product and I called it Dovetail and it was a diary study tool that emailed uh, and sent text messages on a schedule. Yeah. So I just did that on the weekends and weeknights, you know, while I was working at Atlassian. You know, we like I launched it, got a splash page up, put it on Product Hunt, all this sort of stuff. And this was maybe in 20, this was 2016. And we got a few paying customers. It was just me. And then like they all churned, uh, they all canceled. And I was like, what happened here? And so I talked to them. And they were all like, well, we loved your product, but we've finished our project. And so we exported all of the data to analyze it. And I was like, well, okay, makes sense. How are you analyzing it? And so they showed me their whiteboards, their spreadsheets, their sticky note walls, and their like, their like journals and notepads and things like this. 
And I was like, man, like, this seems like a bigger problem. So also, you know, how often do you do this? Oh, I do this all the time. All right, great. It's a subscription business. Long story short, it took about six months for me to convince Brad to leave Atlassian with me. So we just built a really simple cloud-based collaborative tagging tool, basically. And so we started talking to our customers and they were like, okay, this is great. Love Dovetail. It'd be awesome if you could do video, et cetera. So then we built the video stuff and our transcription, the Zoom integration with COVID. And then, but obviously the big missing piece was, well, I've done all this analysis and everything and I really like the tool for that. But when I export it, which is hard because it's a relational tool, I take it over to PowerPoint or to Confluence or, or something like this and share it with stakeholders and I lose all of the kind of, all of the evidence, right? Like all of the, I can't put the videos and stuff into Word documents easily or Confluence pages. And mm -hmm. so at the same time, research repositories was sort of taken off as a problem and we, were, we kept hearing from customers that wanted to solve this problem. And that's where we're really focused right now because I think that's the really interesting opportunity. And the analysis part of the product is fairly well baked. So I think that, yeah, it's funny how you end up kind of just evolving over time. You start yeah, being something. You're going across the user journey. This is, you're going with them. And it's interesting, right. a lot of the, you know, a lot of the kind of decision points in that story, like came from user research, right? A lot of, uh, a lot of meta-ness in both of our companies, I think, where we tried to build it based off talking to users and sharing those and using those insights and relying on those insights. How do you, how do you like think through that balance of, cause there's all like with the, you know, core product at the time or the product that exists, it's never done, right? There's always new requests, at least in, in my experience, like how do you balance, okay, we're going to spend this amount of time on this new product or this new feature versus beefing up the core product. Cause that's something we're always dealing with is like, you know, we could continue to make the screener survey better, the scheduler better, which we want to do. But then we also, you know, wanted to build research hub and that balance has always been difficult. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's one of the hardest problems in I mean, prioritization is the hardest yeah. problem, I think, for startups. I think like shipping MVPs of new features mm -hmm. in order to get more feedback on them to improve them. And then you spend the next quarter kind of improving what you already have and, and, and trying to chip away at some of those feature requests and feedback that you get about the existing feature set. I think you need to, the analogy that I use a lot is like the tent pegs analogy where like you want to lay your tent pegs down first to sort of communicate to the other campers the surface area you're going to take up and then you build your tent up from the ground as opposed to laying down just a single two tent pegs and then building a single wall it's not clear where you're going to go so i think that for, for our customers it's nice to say like well this is kind of where we're going to go so we've got all these features all these tent pegs that aren't fully baked they're not fully built give us feedback what do you want you, what do you want us to see that's uh, cool i've never heard that analogy before i mean the, the concept makes sense I, I feel like i've heard that concept in different flavors but never the tent peg analogy yeah, it's kind of it's like laying the foundation but i think the important thing is like people don't know what they don't know and they don't really know what your company is capable of and so i think that like when we built the video stuff our customers weren't asking for us to build video like that much they were saying like can you make the text analysis you know, faster or make charts better or, you know, do some automation or something like that. And then the whole video highlight reel feature that we built where you can like select stuff, slice it up and we make like a highlight reel. I think that most people probably felt like that was just out of the realm of possibility for a 
company of our size. We were only eight people back then. And so, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they're self-censored, don't give that feedback. And then it all of a sudden it opens up this whole world of possibilities. Yeah, that definitely resonates. We, a lot of times when I'm doing research or just talking to our users, you know, you always ask the magic wand question, but then I'm like, don't just think about what's happening with our product. What are you using? Or what are you doing alongside our product? That's also a friction point. Because a lot of times when you initially ask, you'll say, hey, this feature could be expanded. But then, you know, we started asking that. And then we, a lot of people are like, well, we also have to send NDAs, for instance, and have people like sign those. And I think initially people didn't think about that as something that was in our surface area, uh, to use your analogy. A very similar idea. All right, a quick awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know what's really fun is doing user research, and we want to help you with that. We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free. We all know we should be talking to users more, so we went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it. So get over there and check it out. And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please. Yep. Yeah. What, so what do you think is causing the rise of research? That's one. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, we're both, you know, like you said, there's an element of luck in that our timing's been good. I think there's a bunch of different trends. I think like the base trend across like all the technology is just that the cost of building products has gone down so much that there's a lot more competition, right? So the usability matters a lot more because you're you're not the only person doing what you're doing. And because of that, I think companies want to get closer to their users and make sure they're delighting them. And you see this also on the B2B side, specifically for B2B software, where you know, you used to sell to the CIO or you then used to sell only to the VP. And then with product-led growth, with uh, bottoms-up growth, you're really selling to the end user. So the end user cares about the usability a lot more than the CIO cares. So because of that, companies then have to go and care more about the end user and do a lot more research to one, be competition and to serve them better. So I think those are two pretty big trends that I've been seeing. And then um, yeah, curious. What do you think? Do you agree with those? Anything? Think yeah, definitely. I think a lot of, yeah, like the barrier to entry for building software is a lot lower now. Like I think if you go back to the early 2000s before we had tooling like GitHub and AWS and like Segment and all this sort of stuff, you know, you'd have to kind of write your own code uh, to do the, ho- do the hosting yourself and build your own analytics uh, engine. And so then the next focus I think was, does it look good? Which is kind of why design sort of grew and like, does it look good? Is it usable? And then you started to see kind of companies invest in design, like obviously kind of Google, pretty famous kind of material design sort of revolution, I guess, when they went on Android and mobile. And when I joined Atlassian in 2013, there was only 17 designers spread across the entire company of five, 600 people with Atlassian had 10 plus products, you know, there's not a lot of investment in design because it was all functionality. And then when I left, the design team was 120, 130 people. And this was in 2017. So it it had grown quite a lot. And that was sort of also uh, Sketch and Figma and Envision, they kind of pushed that along and also rode that wave of design. And I think that it was because companies, you know, the engineering side, well, anybody could build billing now anybody can build analytics anybody can build 
uh, a website. And so like the next question is kind of the, really the kind of hardest one, which is, well, what we're building, is it useful? Does it solve real problems? And, you know, is it, is it kind of, what does product market fit look like for this feature and, and what's the value proposition? And do you think it's like, that it's, is it useful or that the bar for usefulness is almost risen because like a lot of the base usefulness has already been built? So. Yeah, I think the bar for usefulness, yeah. So to your point about it being more competitive, 100%. Like another thing I think about is that, you know, we're in the very early days of software. So if you think about if you were going to start a software company back in the early 2000s, a B2B software company, and you're an engineer, the, the first problems you would try to solve are your, are your own problems. You would try and you'd build GitHub, you would build Stripe, you'd build Heroku, you would build, you know, you'd build Segment, you'd build Mixpanel. Like you would build problems that solve your own challenges, right? Mm-hmm. And because and, you know that market, because you are the customer, right? You can yep. dog food it. And so that's what happened. So all these engineers in the Bay Area built products for themselves. And then they that market is saturated, like developer tooling and like products for software teams is a very saturated competitive market. So now people start companies, which is like, okay, we need to build for new markets. We're going to build for energy, for agriculture, for uh, climate and healthcare and financial services. And so all these startups are popping up now in that space. But the problem is that the founders and the engineers and the product team, they're not the customer, right? They've got a different, a different customer base. And so they need to do research on them. So that's, yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think another flavor on that too, is sometimes the first thing to be built is a general purpose tool, right? So not a, Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, a dev tool, like you said, if it's for the engineers themselves and then Maybe number two is a tool that can be applied pretty broadly across departments and across industries. And then, you know, as clouds become much bigger than anyone expected, and a lot of the softwares become much bigger than anyone expected, markets that people used to think were small, like pick your industry or pick your function, are actually very large. Um, so then, yeah, yep. similarly, when you're, when you're building for a specific use case, you want to get very close to them. Yeah. I also think that just, well, uh, kind of, practically, I think that it's becoming harder to do research as well. You know, like it used to be pretty easy just to go email a customer. I think this is something that, you know, I've been trying to figure out like how to research and measure the impact of their work. And I've talked with other researchers about this and, you know, you get differing answers. There's a lot of people that say, look, we, our KPI is going to be activity, right? If we can do this number of sessions, this much research, we're going to assume that it is having impact. There are others that try to, and and the good thing about that is you can measure it, right? Like you can measure with a lot of precision and accuracy how much research you did. On the other side, I've seen people talk through, look, what we consider impact is how it affects the product roadmap for research teams that are kind of bundled with the product organization. And we really track like the number of product decisions that are made based on the research we've done. And I think that's what you want it to be, right? That's like the ideal world. But then on the flip side, it's harder to measure that in a number of different ways. And then and then you also have people who kind of look more at specific features. So they'll say, hey, look, this feature we found through our research is going to have a better you know, click-through rate, is going to open up this segment. And that's great because it's very tangible, but you know, 
doesn't seem to encapsulate all of research. So I'm curious, like, have you seen other ways? Do you have like opinions on which way kind of has measuring the impact is uh, it's very difficult. I think, you know, uh, like research is fundamentally like it, it's a de-risking exercise. It's a way for the business to essentially litmus check or sanity check decisions in a kind of more efficient way than building it and taking something to market to do the same, right? Like it's a validation tool. As I read a blog piece and it was like, yeah, you know, research is the measure once, cut twice for, for product teams, right? You don't want to build it and then have to go back. It lets you, like you said, do good. Yeah. So ideally the research is more efficient than building the feature and shipping it, right? And I think that when it when that is not true, that's where research kind of gets a bad reputation for being kind of costly and slow. And I think that there's different kinds of research, obviously. Like I think evaluative is quite easy to measure. You know, hopefully you can kind of even quantitatively say, well, we found these many bugs, kind of usability issues, and we fixed this many of them, and, and this is kind of the impact we had. The exploratory stuff uh, where you're looking for opportunities, you're talking to customers and getting just broad level, like high level feedback on the product. I think that's a lot harder to measure. But the key thing I think is that research doesn't it doesn't want to be seen as a cost center. So the holy grail when I talk to most of our customers is kind of being able to link a particular insight from a study to a roadmap item or a business initiative and sort of have the connection such that when that thing is shipped back in dovetail, you get like this nice green tick next to the inside, which says like, you know, this resulted in this work, the work actually got shipped to customers and therefore the research was successful and the loop has been closed. And then you would kind of take that to the, you know, when the research team asks for more budget, you take that to the CEO or whoever is in charge of the budget and you say, look, here's all of the kind of risks that we mitigated. Like if this had gone out to market without this research, we would have shipped the wrong thing and it would have taken the engineering team three more months to fix it. But instead we ran a two week long project and we, we did it, you know, we, we learned the lesson upfront. I think that's the way to think about it. But I think unfortunately, this is a bit of a hot take, but I think that a lot of researchers miss this framing and get a bit hung up in the research and the sort of accuracy and quality and sort of statistical significance of the research almost for researchers sake and i think the the pragmatic approach i'm a big fan of pragmatism you have to be very pragmatic as a founder is that a research is this de-risking mechanism and the, the question is how do we get to the the directional insights in a lot of cases as as quickly as possible to save the business time and money i think that's if you think about impact and from that lens i think it becomes a bit easier to justify but yeah. yeah i think sometimes though like de-risking and saving you know time and money does almost imply the cost center viewpoint right i think it's what you described to me and what you guys are building with the, the green check mark seems like more than de-risking it's also like opening new avenues right like it's not necessarily that you would find that without research it would just take more time sometimes you just wouldn't do it so yeah, and I, this is just a thought that just came to me, but you know, I wonder if there's any parallels to sort of how engineering QA works and how they measure the impact of their work. Because in a sense, it's kind of product QA almost yeah. where you're sort of saying, well, this is, you know, like for example, concept testing. Like we did a bunch of concept testing uh, in December and it was a very quick way to get a heap of feedback. But 
was it statistically significant or the most accurate kind of rigorous research? Of course not, but it gave our team some really nice directional insights to be able to move forward. And so, you know, we had a quick and dovetail, obviously a quick kind of list of all the insights, and then we'll be able to tie that to some pieces of work that we're doing. I've used the analogy, you use the analogy to the QA team there. I've used the analogy a lot to like analytics teams, but a lot of times like you know, at the end of the day, both research and analytics teams are trying to get new information, trying to uncover insights and trying to help drive better decision making. And I think both of those, and you know, it's somewhat ironic with analytics, but both of those is really hard to, to measure, but, but they do seem very parallel and they're just approaching it at a, from different viewpoints. Absolutely. I worked on the growth team at Atlassian for a while and, and we were going through a phase in the company where everything was quantitative. Every, I think every company goes through this phase where they see quantitative stuff as a silver bullet. I had a chat with another founder earlier in the week and uh, he was saying he's got this new product designer who wants to usability test every single feature. And the founder's like, you know, I've known about this problem for like three years and let's just ship it, you know. And then I said to him, I was like, look, I think that the way you got to think about it is if you have, it's a confidence thing. If you have low confidence, if you have low confidence, then you need to build your confidence through usability testing or an AB test or a quantitative test. But if you have high confidence, because you've got, you, you know, you've got the context, you have been talking to customers this whole time, you've got all the feature requests, all the feedback, then just get it done. You know, I think that. Like you don't have to A-B test everything. You don't have to research everything. I think it's a, it's a, a, a confidence thing. Yeah. But, yeah. That makes sense. But A-B tests do though, going back to measuring the impact from research, like that's a great way to measure the impact, right? If the research, if you can prove that research move or cause this feature or cause this change, then A-B test is obviously a great way to measure that. But agreed. Yeah. It uh, sometimes leads to a local maximum, right? Especially if you're not pairing it with research to help figure out, hey, what should yeah. A and B? actually be and what should C, D, and E be. Do you think research teams are going to, like, I think right now the plurality is probably they're actually part of design teams, I would say, or yep. reporting into design. There's obviously some that report the product, some that stand alone. There's kind of seems to be this insights teams that have like analytics mm-hmm. and research in them. What do you kind of see as the, the most common one now? And what do you think it'll be like, I don't know, five, 10 years from now? Yeah. So like in Dovetail, you can self-identify what sort of department you're in yeah. and it's like a drop down and you can choose like design or research or whatever. And 50% of people choose design just in our user base. I know that 50% of our user base is not designers. So I think that a lot of people yeah, are in the design team at the moment. I think that it's a tricky one because, you know, one of the things about the rise of research is that it's also called into question the point of product managers, <laughs> which is a thing that a friend of mine, uh, who's a distinguished product manager at Alassian called Sharif, we like to talk about a lot. It's like, if the researchers are doing, talking to customers and doing the research and the designers are more and more influential in terms of setting the vision for the product and running vision workshops and even prioritizing stuff, what does the product manager do? You know, are they kind of pricing? packaging, go-to-market type stuff. But yeah, it's interesting. Like we have this overlap all the time here about, you know, PM design research and kind of varies depending on the company. Yeah, no, for sure. I think, uh, 
I think, you know, I'm not going to say what's the point of product managers. I think I fall, <laughs> fall uh, somewhere else on that, that spectrum. But but I do think like PMing is an interesting role because it, it's very much like a negative space role, right? Like engineers do have yeah. a very clear role. Design has a very clear role. And then PMs a lot of times yeah. are like, how do we make that all work together? So it's almost defined by what the other ones aren't it's doing. The glue, the glue. Yeah. It's like yeah. you have these and it's like something's missing here and it's, it's setting. You also got. You also got like product marketing as well in there too, which is kind of how do we exactly. take it to market? How do we communicate features and stuff? So, yeah, yeah. Now there's you know more and more like specialized roles in that bucket. But you did you, you did bring up a good question, right? If there's more specialized roles taking up that negative space, mm-hmm. is there like negative space? And that's I think the question. Exactly, and I think that's what large organizations struggle with. What is the asset that the role produces? Like if you think about it as an economy. What's the currency that a designer or an engineer produces? And so, like, I think an engineer produces pull requests, in, in a sense. They're, you know, they're writing code, but, like, ultimately, the, the sort of object or the asset that they're producing is a pull request. And I think that and then a product manager produces, like, uh, traditionally, like, a roadmap or maybe a strategy. And, again, that's where the discussion and the collaboration happens. And they're all kind of IC roles. They're all individual contributor roles and they produce this thing. And so the question is, what does a researcher produce? What is the asset? I don't think that's really been figured out. Like, is it insights? Is it reports? Is it is it research plans? Uh, unclear at the moment. I think that's something to figure out perhaps because other roles, it's very tangible. You know? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. I haven't thought about that framework with just like, what is the output that they're working towards? And it's important if, if you're thinking about it as an IC kind of role, because like each IC in the business needs to produce something kind of the, to keep the economy going. Yeah. We talk <laughs> um, a lot about the atomic unit, right? Like, and yeah. someone, I think the, I think it's Quark Chain is the yeah. blog. Uh, yeah. He wrote a good one about how Figma the uh, atomic <laughs> unit. Um, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, I think mm-hmm. as research evolves, you know, at the moment, it reminds me a lot of design, right? Like you go back to where, when I started out as a designer and we were using uh, Photoshop for all of our design work, which was not purpose-built for design. You know, it was a photo editing tool that dealt with bitmaps. And when you look at it now, it's, it's kind of crazy, right? Because you'd, have, you'd use this tool that wasn't even made for it. You'd be creating shapes and buttons and things like this. And it was all kind of, terrible compared to Figma and Sketch. And dovetail people were using like Tumblr, right? For Right. So uh, yeah. exactly. So flick flexible tools yeah. and to your point earlier, get displaced by purpose built software as the the discipline yeah. or the, the problem kind of is mature enough to warrant it, right? Yeah, like our initial customers when we were starting user interviews were using Craigslist. So that's that's the you know, for marketplace, that's, that's the best, that's the big general purpose tool, right? So that's a good yeah. one. There's a whole, I don't know if you've seen the blog post that shows all the businesses that came out of unbundling Craigslist. Right. Uh, but yeah, very uh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, everyone uses these kind of generic tools and then there's some sort of chicken and egg period where there's just enough people with this use case to warrant a company like uh, Sketch to build a vector-based purpose-built uh, user interface design tool. And then there's this pull and push motion, I guess, where these software companies like Figma and Sketch and Envision, in the case of design, you know, pump out heaps of thought leadership and content marketing, kind of push the market along away from generic tools into purpose-built software. And I think that a similar thing happens with research where we're moving from a world of 
spreadsheets and sticky notes and Google Docs and Drive and Dropbox mm-hmm. and Slack into maybe purpose-built software for like storage of data and collaboration around the data, which is where we come in. So, and likewise with user interviews and participant uh, management. So I think that's at a macro level kind of what happens. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes a makes a ton of sense. It looks like we're coming up on an hour here. So uh, I've got one more one more question for you. Uh, so I'm interested, like you guys just raised a 10 mil Series A. What's the future hold for user interviews? Yeah, definitely. So a lot of it is investing in the core product we already have, updating the UX, investing in the audience so that we can make sure we scale and can find more niche participants, find them faster. I think one general theme for me across everything is like the speed to getting these insights because people have to mm-hmm. make these decisions very quickly. And, you know, kind of like your example, when you were at Atlassian, if you have to make a decision in a week or two weeks and it takes a month, you're just not going to do the research, right? So continuing to bring that speed down. But then looking at what's around us in the space, I talked about those other layers. It's how do we make the experience very good for these users that are going to be using these other tools? So I think a big focus for us going into next year is going to be integrations and partnerships so that people have seamless workflows where they can use us to find the participants and then say, you know, no one's agreed to this yet, but say like, look back for conducting the study or another tool for conducting a different type of study. And that's all one seamless experience. And we think that's really important for us to cement our place as participant recruitment and participant management. But we also think that's just a better experience for everyone involved. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Cool. And how about you guys? Well, we are just going to keep trucking away, trying to like, I think one of the big shifts in how people consume and uh, share their research is it's going from a push, like a push out to a mm-hmm. pull. So we have this all the time where researchers and, and not just like we think about researchers with like a capital R as yeah. in like the, the, the title, but then there's mm-hmm. also people like PMs and designers and, and yeah. even we, we like call CX that full-time and, full-time and part-time researchers. Full-time, part-time. Yeah. Yeah. So like people who do research. So, you know, they're kind of having to, the onus of sharing this sort of stuff is on them. They have to kind of organize meetings and and make PowerPoint decks and and publish things through Slack and share stuff, you know, on Confluence or Drive and, and share links around. And so the overwhelming feedback is basically consumers want to be able to pull the data to them at, at any time. So this whole notion of a self-service kind of some customers call it a portal where they can go and they can search through all the research, they can consume it in their own time, uh, whenever they like 24 seven, doesn't rely on a researcher scheduling a meeting or putting a deck together. So I think that whole self-service repository space is where we're investing heavily in. And of course, because we have all the analysis and dovetail, all the data's there. Yeah. The, the, the raw video, the raw transcript and the notes and then the tags and everything like this, and the insights. And so then we just need to, problem is that you don't want to show like the CEO that level yeah. of fidelity. It's too granular. So there's some story on top of uh, that that you need to tell. Yeah. Uh, Kate Towsey, who runs research ops at Atlassian, she recently had a, a tweet, I believe, that said, you know, I think we always use, have used that term, people who do research, but she had a tweet about, we also need to think about people who want research. Um, and it yep. seems like that's kind of a, a shift you're on making, like initially the tools were for the... Yeah. So it's, yeah. So we're totally flipping our whole kind of mindset and rather than focusing on 
people that in DuckTalk are executing on the research and doing the analysis and doing the tagging and all this sort of stuff. We're saying, right, the product's there for that. Now we need to focus on the, the perspective of a consumer. So that's also like looking at things like, you know, analytics is an interesting feature. So if you publish a, a finding or a report or whatever it is in Dovetail, as a researcher, how do you know if you've got some engagement? Well, you know, maybe we can put some page views, analytics and stuff like we've seen Google Docs do this, where you can actually see who's read it, read receipts. You can see how many views it's got. You can put likes and comments on it. Maybe there's a popular feed or something like that. So you can actually have the front page like Reddit for your organization's research. And there's this whole kind of social aspect to it, which is really where we want to focus. Our lead designer calls our strategy basically building the TikTok for research. So that's nice. kind of the, <laughs> that's the... So are, you, are you all going to build a feed? Is there going to be like... In yeah, that's the plan. So I think big, so think if you had YouTube or Pinterest for your research data inside your company, what would that look like? So that's sort of our... That's awesome. Excited to, yeah. uh, excited to see it. Yes. Coming soon. All right. Awesome. Cool. Um, well, cool, Ben. This was fun. Uh, we should do it again. Yeah. No. Awesome, Basil. Uh, thanks for organizing it and great to chat to you. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd.